0: When you look at the Web3, everyone goes into these communities and they're like, you can just feel something, you can feel attraction. The feeling of what we're describing and seeing now is the same feeling that the early OGs of like Ogilvy and those folks talked about when they would come up with a great ad.
1: All right, welcome everybody to this week's episode of Marketing Against the Grain. I am your co-host, Kip Bodner. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Kieran Flanagan. We have a very, very, very special guest for you all today. We have Ross Simmons here. The three of us are going to huddle together. We're going to tell you about some of the best and brightest in marketing and content and give you the real deal, the stuff that nobody ever actually talks about, We're going to get past the tangential Twitter advice and actually get into some real talk about marketing for a little bit. Ross, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, Kip. I'm super
0: excited to be here. Thank you guys for
1: the invite. Let's have some fun. Awesome. Let's do it. Kieran, I think you got a few things to start us off. I'm going to hand it over to you. I thought I would start with a fun Naval tweet and show
2: that Naval isn't beneath trying to cause rage on Twitter.
1: Oh, I know what tweet you're doing, let's bring it.
2: (laughs) I thought it was cool. You're doing sales because you failed at marketing. You're doing marketing because you failed at product. I think you could say you're doing product because you failed at being an entrepreneur, but... I can leave that open for comments or I can go into the next thing I had.
1: (laughs) I want to comment, but I want Ross to go first.
0: Yeah, it's easy to get into a trap of kind of like it just being a, a black and white scenario. You don't need marketing. You don't need sales. You just need a good product. That mentality has for many, in many cases, I believe, caused a lot of challenges with startups, a lot of early stage companies to actually generate traction because they've told themselves, we don't need to worry about distribution. We don't need to worry about sales team. We just need to worry about the product. And as a result they over-inflate the number of features that they have on their product because they're just being mm, product, product, yeah. product, not spending any time doing marketing to do research and learn from their customers. Thus, they're not able to focus on the features that matter, and thus they have a bigger problem. So I do get the sentiment here, but I think... The nuance is what's missing, and it's often missing on Twitter, it, which is the fact that like, if you do good marketing, if you do good sales, it's going to make the business more profitable, more successful.
1: Okay, I got, a, I got a couple things I want to run past you all. First of all, I have talked to a bunch of really smart companies over the years that have had awesome products mm. and had terrible businesses. This tweet perpetuates one of the worst stereotypes about companies ever, that if you have a great product, it markets itself, it sells itself. That is total bullshit. I have seen people with amazing technology who can't even tell you what that technology is so that you could even consider that that might be the right thing for you. Right? And so I think that the world moved back a little bit with this notion. <laughs> <laughs> and he also completely left out pricing and packaging and how you actually take and build a go to market motion that right. quite frankly you can have the best product ever but without that you can have a terrible terrible business and completely fail. Mm. The second part of this, Kieran and Ross, the tweet that I almost sent last night that I decided that like there was a million people responded. So I wasn't going to I was like, look, sometimes you do something because you just want to be great at it. Right. And there's, I think, a lot of value and a lot of pride in that personally. yep,
2: Yeah. I agree.
1: Yep. And I'm someone who spends most
2: of my time with founders of product-led growth companies, which is the go-to-market you would assume would not need marketing because it's fundamentally built around the product that I can tell you every one of those founders is trying to figure out how to build a marketing team. And I really feel if you are truly great at marketing, you will always earn a lot of money because it's really a critical piece of every successful business. Two other quick things. The next one I just really wanted to touch on, which I thought was kind of fascinating because it speaks to the topic we're going to kind of go into is why stories are so important. Netflix's F1 show. I don't know if you guys watch F1. I do
1: not watch F1. I don't know, but I know that show has been huge for them.
2: Right. 50% increase in viewers in the U.S. because of the show. I think one of the things it speaks to is just the value of creating a story brand around something that, you know, is, is a sport, or whatever that may be. But when you add in actual stories and get to know the people involved and get to know the teams and get to know the actual drivers, it just shows you how much more impactful that can be. Stories really are just the lifeblood of every great success story. And I think more so and more so as we get into some of the stats I have to show that all of the other parts of marketing are fundamentally declining in in impact. The skill to be able to tell a story is only going to increase over time.
1: Okay. I want to give people a free idea out there because if you are an investor, you're an entrepreneur, you're looking for something, I think there is just a no-brainer idea of going out, buying small ownership stakes in tertiary sports like lacrosse, spike ball, all that stuff, just buying small percentage ownership stakes because Mm. live sports is one of the most important things in the streaming world. Just like at ESPN, like they used to show Australian rules football in the 80s because they needed something to fill the airtime. Well, now we're going to see communities transform and the communities around all these niche sports get bigger and bigger. So what I would do if I was out there, I would start some type of investment fund to invest in non-popular live sports. So, examples water polo, lacrosse, archery, dodgeball. Dodgeball. Dodge <laughs> I'll pick all of this stuff and I'd buy small investment stakes in all those leagues because you're just going to have a natural demand of streaming increase right. dramatically, where people are going to buy up those rights, and you're going to revenue share is going to be higher. Then I would go and I'd pay Ross to right. do the Netflix play, where I'd be like, "Cool, Ross, can you help me? Yeah, yeah. Package yeah. a remarkable story around the league and the players in a way that the major sports leagues don't have to do. Very cool. And yeah. you know, F1 it was just an international to domestic play here in the states. I think there's a way to take all emerging sports, package them in this really cool documentary format and completely change the community and the growth trajectory of almost any of these sports. And so I think that's what should happen.
0: I think it can go even beyond sports. Think about the Queen's Gambit movie, right? Remember the chess movie that made chess kits like go to stock on the internet, the (laughs) chess.com, like their sales went through the roof. The documentary model Works really, really well if you can tell a good story and if you can convey a story in a great way. And if you can tap into culture a little bit, it goes through the moon. Like even The Last Dance, like Jordan's mm-hmm. sold out when The Last Dance came out yeah. because it was so deeply rooted in like everybody's thoughts. Like everybody's like, The Last Dance, oh, what Jordan's did he wear when he made that shot? Oh, I need to get those. You look at even music when Beyonce comes out with the Coachella. Her albums, all of the streaming hits, like it goes to the moon every single time. Like there is truly something interesting about leveraging this documentary style format that I think our culture just loves that if you can find a good story, you can apply that to almost anything. And if the story's right, it will resonate with people. Like F1 racing... (laughs) <laughs> I, what what like, it's on the surface yeah. super obscure right but it's gotten the attention of so many people exactly it's just like chess no one was talking about chess but
2: then queen's gamut comes out and it like just blows up
1: you had a chess.com obsession kieran the audience should know
2: i play a lot of chess uh, i had a other uh, podcast at some point and i try to speak to their cmo because they're a fascinating brand yeah they are they're a tiny company that do something like 300 million visits a month i started to break down all their yeah. data and that that company are amazing. What they do now is they run sponsored chess events. Like they did one for Mr. Beast and they're doing like it's it's pretty cool what that brand do. The other reason it works so well for sports like stories and that idea, Kip, is because like every great story is the hero's journey. And sport is inherently that is sport, right? It is the hero's journey. One mm-hmm. company that's done an amazing job of what you said and as a Goliath now is the UFC. Buying that company for $4 million, yeah. selling for 4000000000 billion.
1: They're the case study.
2: And how did they do that? They made fighters the story. They put the, the shine on the fighters. Now they don't pay their fighters enough, but that's a whole a whole other thing. Kip, you want to talk about Yoga Labs?
1: Okay, Ross, I want I want to get your take on Yoga Labs, which is the company mm-hmm. behind Board Ape Yacht Club. They yeah. bought CryptoPunks and all the CryptoPunks IP from Larva Labs. I'll give you my take on it first, and I want to hear what you're saying. My take is this is one of the key tentpole moments in the businessification of mm, IP. Right. IP used to be comic book movies and just relegated to the entertainment industry. Now we're seeing intellectual property be core to everything we've done. And if you're a marketer today, if you were not thinking about intellectual property long-term building or acquiring it, you were going to lose. And yeah. the example I would give you is that most marketing out there today is either really evergreen, programmatic, answers to basic how-to questions or very Mm campaign-based. Oh, we're launching this thing and it's kind of done and it dies. There's nothing where you're building this endurable intellectual property where it's, oh, here's this thing that we're going to make you familiar with and we're going to extend it and extend it and extend it month after month, year after year to where it has such resonance in the market that the value of this IP is actually directly correlated to the value of our brand. Do you agree or disagree? What's your take, Ross? I agree.
0: There's a major shift happening with IP and I think it's kind of going to present a lot of new opportunities for brands around how you mobilize your communities to take the IP and turn it into something for them, by them in many ways if the IP is essentially given to the community, the community now has an incentive to see that IP kind of become more and more valuable, right? Like the the marvels of the world, their value is rooted directly in the success of just Marvel, right? Like if Marvel's successful, Marvel's successful. Yeah. I don't become more successful because I happen to have a stake in Gambit or some other random character. But if I have a stake in the character's success, guess who's going to share their story? Yes. Guess who's going to try to come up with ways to tell that story a little bit more uniquely? Guess who's gonna go into the wattpads pads of the world and write their own fan fiction about Gambit because they want the Gambit story in essence to reach more people? I am. I think the IP opportunities have just become deeper and stronger now because people can now control them and the incentives are now being more aligned with the opportunity to kind of do this together. So there's a lot of controversy around like, is this the way that things should be by people? Like people are like, should people be incentivized to be able to get a kickback off of IP, blah, blah, blah. Isn't that kind of a, a pyramid? In reality, it's just a complete shift in the way of doing business that has never really happened before. So I'm excited by it. The acquisition play was genius. I think the game is still so long from where traditional brands need to be to be thinking about this stuff. I saw, I believe it was Bud Light that rolled out their own NFT a while back and they haven't done much with it since. I don't think the organizations have caught up with the culture to even know the rate in which they need to move cannot be the rate in which they've moved in the past.
1: Well, let's let's break down a bunch of what you just said in there for everybody listening, Ross, because first of all, the next couple of years is going to be littered with companies that fail at this. Yes. And to be a company that succeeds, you first have to understand the macro. We are moving to an era of the decentralized web. Yeah. And the decentralized web does a couple of really important things. The first is it changes the incentive structure, just like Ross was outlining. And I thought you did a great job articulating that, where the incentive goes from just solely being with the project or the brand to the whole community, inclusive of the project or brand, but inclusive of everybody in that community. Great what that does though is it decentralizes everything else. Right. Where you used to have a room full of writers who told a story, now you have a community that tells a mm-hmm. story. Like that's a great example of like the storytelling is even yeah. completely decentralized. Right. And so once you realize that you have a community driven story play versus kind of a brand driven story play, it changes completely. One, you have to get the incentives and the incentive sharing with your community, right? And that's something that most people don't do. One of the things that the Yoga Labs folks behind Board Ape have done really well is sharing that incentive with the community, whether it be through the Mutant Ape drop, whether it be through the drop of Ape coin airdrop to all weird. holders. You know, like there are people going out and buying Teslas and yachts and stuff with just their Ape coin drop from just holding an NFT for a year, which is like a whole different thing. But that is the power of what incentives have to offer. And then once you realize the power of those incentives, you have to build for the long-term, not the short-term. You just can't do a quick little NFT project. You have to say, hey, I am building a community and I'm building a long, durable set of IP that is going to have this huge extension and roadmap that's going to take me years to deliver. But at every point I deliver on that, my community is going to get 5, 10x the value than they had before that shipped and that drop. And I think if you are thinking about out there about how you would apply this to your business, those are kind of the principles you want to keep in mind. I don't know, what do you two think?
0: Yeah, that long-term view is the biggest piece, right? Because here's the thing that throws people off. They see the fact that, okay, NFTs had a major spike and then it started to dwindle in terms of like the organic search traffic for NFTs and they see all of these reports and then everybody's like, oh, it's a fad, I need to step back, I need to go back into traditional, I can't do this thing. Like you have to be truly in it. And I think companies are still fearful, but the opportunity is still there and you have to be able to be okay with a little bit of that FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You have to be okay with that as a part of your investment into this type of a space.
2: Yeah. Most of the NFTs that will fail are going to fail because they have a more campaign mindset where they're like, hey, this is going to be the thing for a month, generate as much revenue as it can. But the thing that Bugle Labs have done is continue to build upon the value. And there are books where I think there's ones called Flip the Funnel written about Web2, where you'd kind of flip the funnel, the marketing funnel, turn delight into Mm -hmm. an acquisition channel. Uh, That's not really true in Web2. Like, it's really hard to do that. I think referrals and virality and stuff can help. But... Web3 actually does truly flip the funnel because it changes the incentives. You start with your customers and community, you incentivize those, and then they build out. And I think that that is going to be really disruptive for how we grow businesses, but truly great for people who are users and customers of that. If you take the most extreme version of companies who don't do is like broadband companies, right? You sign up for a broadband company, then they come out and say, hey, we're going to give free TVs and money to like you customers. And you ring them up and you say, can I have this stuff? I'm a customer. No, you don't get anything but bad internet service and terrible (laughs) customer support, (laughs)
1: right? Yeah. That is going to be disruptive for every other business who doesn't take that path. One last thing on this is the talent side of this Mm -hmm. and the brand building side of this. So there are a couple of unique things. Can you tell me the name of the people who actually own Yuga Labs? No. No, you can't. You can't, which is really, really interesting. Think about it. Even Yuga Labs, most people don't even know what Yuga Labs is. It's just a holding company for these projects, right? And that is completely the antithesis of how brands work. It's like, oh, here's the CEO of this company. Here's the brand of the company. Oh, wow, this is very decentralized right it's a very different shift and to me it's a great signal of if you're going to build a great community you can't start with this ego driven right i'm the person who runs this thing you have to start with we are the people who do this thing the other thing that they did that was really smart that flies very under the radar that a lot of people don't know is they brought in guy o'siri who's like madonna's manager and youtube's mm, yeah, manager yeah. and they brought in this like really heavy hitter to basically extend that ip and to pl- help them play the long game and drive value for their community which i think was, has been very underrated. One of the things I also saw is that there's apparently a new HBS, Harvard Business School case study on board a Yacht Club. Hot off the presses, only being taught at HBS, not syndicated in the other schools yet. I think we yeah. need to get a copy of that and have a follow-up awesome. episode with the three of us where we yeah. dive we dive into it because I think it would be cool. I, I, I know some people, we might we can probably get a hold <laughs> of it. But what you're seeing here is a real case study of how to build a more decentralized brand yeah. and intellectual property over time. What do you all think?
0: I'm here for it. Like when you even think about (laughs) what's happening with a lot of celebrities with their own brands now and they're rolling out like these ghost kitchens. Right. You see Mr. Beast with his various chocolate bars and things like that. Tyga has like chicken nuggets. There's so many different things that you can do now with the IP. Like imagine now you have your own board ape and you're now able to set up a partnership with a local restaurant where it's going to be pizza with your ape. That's where we're going. And it's going to be fascinating to see. Some people just never had the creativity, opportunities in front of them. Now they're like, oh, I've got this asset. I've got this IP. I control it. I can now release and unleash board games with this. I can release new coffee shops, pop-ups, events, et cetera. The opportunities are just going to be wild.
1: I think you bring up a really good point. We are in the point of a transition. It used to be we monetized distribution Mm. because... Distribution was the easier thing because it cost a bunch of money to make custom coffee cups or custom restaurant experiences. That yeah. used to be really hard. Now that the barrier to do those things is much less expensive, we are now monetizing identity more than we are distribution. Right. Mm-hmm. Identity is now the thing because we can now replicate identity across whether it be nfts whether it be anything at a more exponential rate than ever before in human history and so that makes it actually an easier thing to monetize than just the raw distribution itself which is why we're seeing all these trends happen that is like the first principle for everybody listening that's underpinning all of this and so if you have a campaign a brand anything that doesn't have identity you're not going to be able to be successful long term
2: three quick points to before we move on to the next topic uh, Kip and I are going to do a show about how the board apes became such a global phenomenon. We're going to take get someone from the community who invested early in that to get to uh, comment on that. One of the things I'm fascinated by is like, how do you be a marketing leader within Web three? Because I've talked to a bunch of CMOS in Web three space, and it's just so different. Like, you if you want to do something marketing wise, you have to get buy in from your DAO. If they don't want to do it, you can't do it. Like, so I think that would be an interesting episode. Yeah. <laughs> So let me hit you with some stats and this is kind of getting into the core topic. We want to talk about around content, media, future of, of stories. I'll hit you with a bunch of stats. So what's interesting, if you look at some of the trends that are happening right now, there's a growing number or percentage of the organic listings that Google retrieves that are under 10 results, right? Historically, we've always grew up with the, oh, let's try and get on the first page of Google in that top 10 listing. Actually, 20% of the listings now have around seven results. I think the average uh, is 8.5 on desktop. That's pretty pretty fascinating, right? The desktop organic clicks are declining. Only 2% paid ads are increased on desktop. They've increased 6%, like the click-through rate. And then what's really fascinating on desktop, the number of no-click searches, because Google provides the information on the page, has grown to 46%. Pretty, pretty interesting. But here is where the jaw-dropping stuff comes in. On mobile... Click-through rate, organic click-through rate has dropped from 40% to 29%. So let me just say that again, has dropped from 40% to 29%. Whereas on desktop, uh, it's only dropped 2%. So it's It's around 40-something percent in desktop. 77% of all searches on mobile result in zero clicks, right? Zero clicks. And the estimation is that 72% of all internet users by 2025 will access the internet solely through a smartphone you have the cost of paid advertising has increased 100% year on year. And actually, when you look at mobile, one of the reasons is mobile clicks have doubled over the past year, because there's just much more focus from Google on trying to get people to click on paid ads than there is organic ads. And 63% of content marketers said they rely on Google for growth. All right, that's my roundabout way on saying, if you were doing marketing in the past 10 years, you may look Back on that and say, wow, what a golden era for doing marketing. <laughs> 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 Hell yeah. yeah. Not to say it isn't hard, but there were some things you could get expertise in that would result in you being able to create dramatic, dramatic gains for businesses. Now, that's, I'm not saying that's not going to be what we can do in the future, but man, marketing is going to be so much different over the, the next 10 years and going to be much, much harder. I wanted to start the conversation. How do we feel about those stats? And if I'm a marketer and I, start to feel anxious (laughs) about their stats. What do we tell our listeners uh, who hear that and think, wow, what do I do over the next five years to make an impact in my business, to make an impact with my clients?
0: I think so many marketers get anxious by these numbers, but I think they should actually be inspired by them more than anything.
1: Yes, Ross, do this. It
0: presents opportunity, right? Like, Great, I'm glad that there's now more things being thrown our way because it's going to allow the greats to stand out from the rest. Mm. So if you want to be great, buckle up. Now's the time to get more creative and to get more innovative with your thinking. Like the, the writing has been on the wall that Google's becoming a destination for the past like six years. We've seen the paid stuff just takes up the entire SERP. We can see featured snippets taking up a significant amount of space. We can see answers to questions now showing up directly in the SERP. If you go to Google and you type in marketing books, you used to be sent to a great blog post that were filled with marketing books. Now Google's taking the images and showing them to you along with the titles of those blog posts. You have no need to go anywhere else. So the no-click data is validating the fact that Google has played a great game, which is to increase their shareholder value, which is to keep people on Google-related properties and not send people to blog posts and websites, et cetera. They're scraping the internet. They're putting it in the SERP. Great. That's the game. Now, we as marketers have to start thinking like great marketers. You now have to try to Own your relationship with your audience. You now need to find ways that you can build a meaningful relationship so they're coming directly to you, that they're opening whatever it is that you're delivering to them. You're thinking about channels of arbitrage opportunities that everyone else is ignoring, like inside of the Discords, inside of the TikToks, all of the things that most senior marketers have now kind of said I don't want to touch it. I can't do it. Those are now the opportunities. Do you have to still take care of some of the fundamentals as it relates to SEO and basics, etc.? 100%. They're still going to pay the bills, but now presents an amazing opportunity for marketers to get back to the fundamentals of marketing, which is rooting it in research, trying to get ahead of the curve, find an advantage before your competitors, and then win.
1: Like Let's buckle up. Let's go. Like this is exciting to me. I agree with you, but I, I want to package it a little bit differently for our audience too. Which yeah. is, there, there are a couple of things in there. What you just said, Ross, that I, I completely agree with. The first is when you see numbers like Kieran just shared, where click through rates are really, really dropping. That's we saw that in the, as email got commoditized, right? They're just it's just a march to commoditization, right? And that's an important thing to to understand. And you have to say, cool, are my strategies marching to commoditization or are they still firmly in highly differentiated mode? And if they're marching to to commoditization, then your appetite for risk needs to be much higher, which is which is one of the things you were indirectly saying, Ross. But I want to make sure that people get that is like you have to be willing to do new and different things because as things commoditize, new channels open up. And that's where you actually get 10, 20, 30, 100x return in your marketing efforts. And by the way, that's what Google was like 10, 15 years ago. You got crazy, crazy, crazy returns. And what we're saying is that is just as a channel is just commoditizing, which means you now have to go to the next version, the next channel. And we posited on this show a lot that a big opportunity there is going to be community and how you incentivize community, making things that seem kind of impossible today possible through the flipping of a value proposition. But that is fundamentally, as a marketer, you have to get much more comfortable with risk over the next 10 years than you've had to be over the last 10 years.
2: One thing to play the marketing
1: devil in this. You're the pessimist, Kieran. Bring us down to pessimism.
2: Kip is half glass full. I'm All the glass is empty and spilled all over your laptop. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the glasses are broken and Kieran's walking across them yeah, on the floor. Yeah,
2: I know. <laughs> Doing Tony Robbins' <laughs> <is> chanting. <laughs> one of the things, uh, reference back to an episode, Meyer Gupta, Kip and I talked to, and one of the things Meyer actually said was, hey, marketing needs to get back to the foundation. We were too reliant on data. But let me kind of tell you one of the things that is still going to be complex is the reason Google and paid work so well is their linear paths to conversion. You can actually get someone to do something because they're in that mode and then get them to convert quite easily. Most of the other channels you can start to lead into, and particularly around like media and content and brand and things like that. Don't convert as well, and I think one of the things we're all probably we all believe is in the future. I think marketing's job is to grow a community. We see that in Web three, but how you convert people from a community into a customer, I think that's going to be a very new skill set for for people to learn. And so, do you think as the channels evolve, maybe the way we f- founders and companies think about marketing's objective and mission needs to evolve because marketing wants a seat at the revenue table, uh, you know, at the big person's table. And we've managed to do that because we can show the direct impact on our activities towards revenue because we market through these linear channels. How do you feel about in the future? Maybe we shouldn't think about marketing as like the only thing really is to generate revenue, but the thing is to generate meaningful engagement and meaningful community.
0: Since the beginning of humanity, Communities that were built, whether it was built around like you being in a location, whether it was an ideology that you had, like the communities that have made up society, all typically do have that conversion point. Now,
2: mm.
0: I believe marketers might lose sight of how to do it well, but I think inherently inside of a community, there's often a bit of a conversion moment that happens, and you can intentionally build habits within your community, you can intentionally build ethos and fundamentals and like kind of the, the way in which you operate to kind of have that request, right? Like there's a request, there's an ask, there's, it's okay for the org to put out a request or an ask in a way that doesn't kind of seem too sleazy or salesy, but at the core, you can still kind of put that out there. Because I think inside of the community, if everyone is getting value from it, Everyone wants the community to thrive. And for the community to thrive, there needs to be an equal value exchange in some ways happening across everyone. And if you can do it well, I think you can ultimately still find that opportunity. But you have to continue to grow your community. The growth of the community becomes a a system that needs to be in in place. But I would say say it's a mistake if marketers think they cannot convert within the community and they shouldn't try to convert within the community. I think you should.
1: I think that's smart. I agree with what you're saying. I think I think there are a few things here. One of the things that I would bring up for everybody is, going back to m- one of Meyer Gupta's points from the a previous episode, is like, marketers have let data wag the dog. Right. Like, if you go back to the early days of, of Web2, when we were talking blogging, Twitter was just on the scene, LinkedIn was early on the scene, you didn't have data on anything. Exactly. You didn't have data on anything. But because the channels were so new... You got a bunch of engagement, you got a bunch of upside, and they were much better compared to what was happening on email, which was getting much more commoditized, much more predictable in the returns. So it wasn't that email didn't work. It worked, but it was just way more predictable. And what we're saying is not that you are stop doing search, Kieran. Search is going to be super important. It's just moving to that email bucket where that the, the quadratic or exponential return on your search program is going to be much harder the next 10 years than it was the last 10 years and so if you want that exponential return you're going to have to do other things and the core point i'm trying to make is a lot of those other things whether that be community whether it be TikTok, whether it be incentivizing you know direct kind of play to learn play to earn behavior right it's going to be much harder to measure especially in the early days and there's a direct correlation between how hard something is to measure in the early days and how much opportunity there is. Yeah. Once all the tooling and measurement is built out and everybody can find the certainty, then it gets commoditized. Cause everybody's like, Oh, this is an obvious thing. Are you willing to take a bet before you have all that information? That is where people's careers and brands are gonna get made or broken over the next 10 years.
2: Mm. This was actually my, that this, you made the exact point that I was going to make in terms of if you think about the evolution of web two, in the early days, you don't know what works. So you're actually much more creative. Again, marketers yes. is a creative role baked in data, right? And then as data becomes much more ubiquitous and visible and you can see what works, well, everyone diverts to the mean because we know what works, right? And everyone starts doing the same things because they're the things tactically that works. And then, you know, what you see the juxtapose is if you spend time in web 3 they can't measure anything like I, was, I spoke to the growth team's marketing yeah. teams and they're just trying to do wild wonderful things to try to grow you know the impact of their brand try to grow the engagement of their community try to get more people to know about them because they can't measure anything it somewhat takes the shackles off and i think that's been an interesting part of the evolution of marketing over the past decade is marketing could not Get respect, could not get additional budget or any of those things because they couldn't prove their value. Now we can prove our value, but maybe we've anchored our value in a, such a core set of metrics that we're shackled to those metrics and unable to do things that are creative and differentiated.
1: Once you put a value on something, you take the magic away.
0: Like when you look at the Web3, everyone goes into these communities and they're like, you can just feel something, you can feel attraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the feeling of what we're describing and seeing now is the same feeling that the early OGs of like Ogilvy and those folks talked about when they would come up with a great ad. Like you know it's a great ad when you see it. That essence is kind of gone now because we all want to over-optimize and overrun A/B tests and see what the click-through rate is of this and that. How scalable is it? Does it connect back to the CPC? Blah blah blah. Like we over. We have definitely over-indexed on the data side and have forgotten about the art. Yes, there is no question that there's elements of marketing that will truly always have some quantifiable like metrics associated with it, but we can't lose sight of the fact that the best stories still win. And stories right. are very difficult to kind of just measure. The best story wins.
1: Well, so try to make this practical for everybody listening, whether you're a marketer, whether you're a CEO. This is this is be my pitch to both of you. And you can tell me if you agree or disagree if you if you extrapolate this all out you're really talking about channels that are in operating mode or building mode you know if you think about the early days of web 2 when twitter google everything was just starting all of those companies were building right and means that they right. didn't have the pressure to monetize yet all of their ways to monetize were super early like they didn't have to like just oh throw more ads on the search engine results page to hit the numbers this year it's like oh no we we just have ads and we'll crush for the next like 3 years right and so when things are in building mode your incentives are directly aligned with those channels, right? When any channel uses a building mode, whether it be a community, whether it be a platform, what have you, when it's in operating mode where it is trying to optimize for optimum cash flow, optimum return, whatever that may be. It's still going to work for you, but those returns are going to be very predictable and they're likely going to get more expensive over time. Right. And so if you have a, a portfolio that is 100% one or the other, you're probably in a bad place as a marketer. What you have to do is determine what is the mix between those operator channels and those building channels. And you have to make that decision based on where you are as a business in your kind of building and growth and trajectory. I think for most established companies, you're probably looking at a 50-50, 60-40 50, split between those is my guess, but I'd love to hear what you two think. I would
0: say most larger organizations don't come close to 50 to 60 split. No, I no. think the vast majority are 5% on the like building side. Like They are uh, the most risk-adverse that totally. you'll ever see. Like I don't think they're touching that, but I think that would be the ideal mix. Like If you want to drive growth and stay ahead, you have to make those moves into channels that make you a little bit uncomfortable and try those channels and those opportunities that don't necessarily sometimes even feel like they can scale, right? Like you want to go into those places because that's where you will get those outsized return. And this is where I find the up and coming companies actually are able to take market share from the larger organizations because they're willing to take the shot because they have nothing to lose. The organizations that have something to lose are afraid to invest in these riskier channels because that investment to them is a significant endeavor. But for the up and coming scrappy startup that just came up with a new idea or just raised their first Series A, they can try to find those arbitrage opportunities because they're going to give them potentially the chance to, to really explode and beat the leader.
1: Well, that, that's the key thing to understand there. Most organizations think of investing in marketing channels as what it's going to cost right. Right, to do it. The actual investment is what do you have to lose? Yep. you know? And the, the companies that have a lot to lose don't invest in new and emerging channels because yep. that cost is way too high, and way untenable. It's actually not the capital to go and do it. It is the potential for lost capital, lost brand image, all of those things that is stopping them from doing it.
2: Can we end this episode with something that firmly will belong in the kind of emerging channels? Like We've talked a lot about stories. Mm. Most of the listeners listening to this understand the content, educate, how do I attract people through that and get them to convert on things? What do we mean by stories? Like if I'm a marketer listening to this, what do you mean by stories? Like how should I think about storytelling for my brand and how can I be, how can I tell a great story around my brand?
0: From my end, there's essentially... And this is an idea I've been evolved I've evolved over time but I've always believed that when it comes to storytelling you can go into one of four categories. You can create stories that are going to educate people, stories that are going to entertain people, stories that are going to engage people, and the final one that I've just started to come to light to realize I believe is real is stories that empower people. Mm-hmm. And if you create stories that do one of those four things, you have a story that can ultimately move people and shape culture.
1: Can can you give an example of each of those, Ross? I can. Of like a type of story for each of those. That'd be awesome for everybody listening.
0: Yeah. So when we talk about educational stories, we're talking about a story that provides people with information on something that they didn't know before. Documentaries like Super Size Me a few years back educated the masses on fast food and it truly impacted a brand. That's great storytelling. We see those with blog posts, with white papers, the Mary Meeker reports. Like Those are educational stories that might not have the same scale as the Supersize Me, but they're educational assets. Engaging stories are the ones that take us on a journey where we're having a bit of a dialogue, where we feel connected to the brand. It's happening on social. It's happening on TikTok. It's happening in the comments. It's happening in the DMs. And these aren't your traditional thought of what a story is. It's a video game right? Those are engaging interactions between two organizations, two people, or one person and multiple people. It's what happens inside of Discords, inside of these Web3 communities. Those are stories that are happening every single day, community members talking to each other about things. That's engaging. On the entertainment side, we all know this when we see it. It's anything that makes us smile, anything that makes us laugh, anything that makes us feel inspired, anything that makes us feel kind of like what's going on and makes us feel curious, Red Bull does this extremely well when they drop someone from space. That is the ultimate level of entertainment. And then on the empowering side, this is what we're starting to see consistently across a lot of industries where there's power in helping other people win. Mm. There's a lot of power in giving and empowering other people to unlock their own greatness, their best, and then tell the story of that person or let that person be celebrated. You see it on Twitter when someone creates a Twitter thread with all kinds of different people they're mentioning. You see it in blog posts that are curating some of the greatest minds in different regions and areas. You're seeing it in podcasts and interviews All of those things are storytelling where you're empowering other people. So across those buckets, I think those are some of the key fundamentals of storytelling. And then within them, you have
2: different layers that you can kind of apply to them. And we would probably say that if we take kind of the whole theme of this is the things that we do and the things that we should start to lean into, marketers traditionally have leaned into that educational bucket. And it's probably the other three, like empowering, I think for most companies, it's just case studies and most of the case studies are kind of boring. It's hundred percent. It's the other three that are going to become much, much more important over the next five years. And that's probably why you see a lot of tech companies buying media companies because they're not good at the other three.
0: They're not good at it at all, but it's so key. What,
1: why aren't they good at it? What do they need to do differently to get good at it?
0: get closer to the cultures that you're trying to influence. That's the biggest thing, Mm -hmm. right? Like they're so disconnected. But
1: why? Is it because they're too obsessed with
0: the product or what? They view, in B2B in particular, they view people as just wanting to be successful in their job. And that's it. They think that's the only thing that matters to people, when in reality, people are like onions, we have multiple layers, and we actually do want to laugh, we do want to smile, we want to be inspired, we want to be good parents, we want to be good partners, we want to be able to understand how to be a good baseball coach, softball coach, all of these different things, but the brands typically like, ooh, don't want to get into the soft human stuff, let's just tell you how to do a great SEO plan. Yeah, let's write another one about how to do a great backlink research audit. Those are the things that we can rely on as crutches because we don't want to do the human things. It's just like relationships, right? It's easy to go into a relationship with someone and just be like surface level and never get into the heart of like, but who are you as a human and want to connect with that stuff? And it also makes them vulnerable and brands don't want to be vulnerable. They don't want people to dislike them because when you go down the path of entertainment, you go down the path of engagement, people will start to call you out on things that they dislike and it might be because they're not your audience, but brands are fearful. And I think when you can get over that fear of being disliked by a few people, it just makes it entirely different. Like think of some of the most powerful brands in the world. Some people hate them Mm. because they had an opinion, because they have a perspective, because they actually stand for something that's okay. If you're neutral on everything, then no one will care. No one will care because you're just educating me on SEO all the time.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, the, the most successful musical of the last decade is all about this, right? right. You know, the musical Hamilton, you know, the whole yeah. dialogue is about how Raymond Bird doesn't stand for anything. Yeah. You know, he just goes with whatever, wherever the wind blows and Hamilton is beguiled he's hated by a bunch of people but it's because he has very strong opinions they don't think his financial system's good whatever that may be right these are two important historical figures but it's a lesson in people want to follow the brand the character that is willing to stand for something versus the you know the the brand the character that they don't have any association any identity with
2: floyd money mayweather people tune in to watch him get knocked out he still made a lot of money although <laughs> totally. i don't think any brand is going to uh want to go for the amount of uh, hatred floyd gets but uh it does show you that you like death is in, is in the middle right if you're in the middle that you're just going to be a, an average company and it's going to be very very hard to ever become world-class you need to find yeah. balance okay we are up on time we want to thank ross Ross, how do people, like you're one of the best peoples in terms of storytelling. I know you're, uh, you're You're very visible on Twitter. Like where can people go, dig into your ideas, learn more?
0: Yeah, Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm on both of those platforms. That would be the best place to connect with me. I'm on all of your favorite social media platforms. Happy to connect with everyone anywhere, anytime. Thank you both for having me on. I really enjoyed this convo. Hopefully we can do it again
2: sometime as well. Where can they find your your dream playbook
0: yeah so you can find that right on ross Simmons.com. um it's fully accessible i definitely think people should check it out it breaks down all of the ins and outs of distribution so ross distropack slash distro pack um will help you get that directly into your inbox and it will break down how to distribute your content more effectively online
2: make sure you get that because like product most content strategies fail because people don't understand how to do distribution All right, that's marking against green. We love doing this. Okay, we're going to be back on the next episode. Until then, please, please, please subscribe, follow, subscribe, and we will see you next time.
1: Thanks, everybody. Have a good week.